seat. And uh, as you do that, I'll just bring a few announcements in front of mine. Um, today is our quarterly missions offering. So every, every quarter we take a special offering that is distributed uh, to the missionaries that Creekside regularly supports. So if you'd like to contribute towards that, uh, you can do so. Uh, if you put a little note on your check or if you have uh, a gift that you want to put inside of an envelope, you can do that. Just uh, designate that it's part of the missions offering. And then the, that contribution will be uh, distributed specifically for that purpose. Uh, if, you, if, you're, if you're new or not familiar, our, we have our, our uh, giving box out on the welcome table. And so that's, that's where you can do that after the service. Um, you saw the table out front. Our Rwanda program is starting up soon. So August 30th is the first night really for all of our fall ministries, not just Awana. Uh, we have ministries going on really for every age. So whether you're in junior high, high school, Awana, if you want to be a part of a, a men's study or a women's study, August 30th is the day for that. Every week there's a meal uh, beforehand. So if you want to come for the meal, uh, feel free to do that. That's at 530 and then uh, the Awana and everything else uh, kicks off, uh, I think, Awana 6.15, typically, and, and youth group starts at 6.30. So, uh, but Mary has informed me the registration sheets are available. So today is the day where you can, if, you, if your kid is interested in Awana, you can get their names down and get them registered, get it out of the way. Uh, early, there's always a, a line on that first night of people who maybe haven't had a chance to register yet. So register now, avoid the way, avoid the line. Um, also on the Awana note, there's an informational meeting. So this Wednesday night, if you want to be a part of maybe uh, helping with Awana, whether that's being a first listener or something else, uh, come to the informational meeting this Wednesday. I'm going to have to have you look at the bulletin for the specific time, but it's Wednesday night this week. Uh, so you, you have the informational meeting, then a week after that, I want to start. So I think I got everything covered. Uh, Mark, if I forgot something, you can you can put it in a plug, but uh, we're going to have Mark come up and continue our uh, series in first season. All right. Well, it's only 85 degrees right now, so it's kind of cool out, actually, compared to what we're going to get this week. We've got another 20 degrees to go, I think, from what I see in the forecast, but hopefully we'll stay cool this morning and uh, won't get the heat could put you to sleep during a good sermon, right? Um, well, we're continuing our series in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 26, so if you have your Bible, please open there. You know, I'm just fascinated by the life of David. I've grown up with these stories, um, you know, the shepherd boy, unlikely shepherd boy, the runt of the family chosen to be the next king who rises up to slay the giant Goliath. God prepares and makes him the king. And, uh, but every time you open the word of God, it continues to teach you new truths. It's fresh. It's new. And I'm just so impressed with David. Um, the ups and downs. You know, you can really identify with someone like David who, who sins, and yet he's quick to confess his sin and turn to God. That's what's unique about David among many of the kings of the Old Testament is that they all sin. Some are more righteous than others. Most are not very righteous. But David is one who's always very quick to confess, quick to turn to the Lord when he realizes his wrong. And we see a lot through David about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
in him we see pictures of Christ throughout the stories of David, which is wonderful. Um, there was sort of a turning point in our study of the series back in chapter 13 when Saul, King Saul, um, was supposed to wait for the prophet Samuel to come and make the sacrifices. He, Samuel delayed, and Saul went ahead and offered the sacrifices in disobedience to the Lord. And it was at that point that the Lord, um, through the prophet Samuel, said, Now your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. You know, they wanted a king, they wanted to be like all the other nations, but they wanted a king for the wrong reasons. They wanted a king to be strong and mighty and to have that figurehead and to be like the other nations. They weren't wanting a king so that God could more effectively rule through that king. But Saul, even though he's a failure, God in his mercy on the nation was preparing a better man. And it was a long time. Saul was king for 40 years. That's why did God let Saul continue to be a bad king for a nation like that for 40 years? It's a good question, but through that time, Dave, God was preparing David to be his man to lead his people. And through that time, he gave David lots of opportunities to be preparing for being the king. He gave David an opportunity in Saul's court. Remember, David got to serve as Saul's armor bearer, his bodyguard. He got to learn the business of the court through that and how to conduct king, kingly business of the court. He got to have opportunity to lead men and lead warriors and become the commander of the warriors. He gave David opportunity to learn how to be patient and wait on him. That was Saul's big failure, right? And even after years after being anointed to be the king, he still had to wait. But through that time, God is shaping and molding David to be the kind of king he wants him to be. Dr. Dave Reed, one of my former professors, said, Our faith and righteousness will be tested throughout our lifetime. Graduation does not come until we get to heaven. Our faith and righteousness will be tested throughout our lifetime. And God uses that to mold and shape his people to be who he wants them to be. In chapter 24, a couple weeks ago, we saw how David had the perfect opportunity to take revenge on Saul. That's an interesting story. David and his 600 uh, mercenaries are with him in a large, large cave. Perhaps there's running water in it. And Saul comes in to relieve himself, uh, squatting down. And you get the picture there, and David has the opportunity to take revenge, put the dagger in his back, take his life. But David refuses revenge. Instead, he risks reconciliation with Saul, and they leave on a measure of peace. It seems like maybe they've reconciled and they're at peace at the end of that chapter, the way Saul talks. And then in chapter 25, we see David going on the warpath, personal vengeance, kind of the flip side of that previous chapter, where he's going to take out Nabal, this rich, rude rancher who slights David and his men, and he's going to take him out, but then God sends a godly woman, Abigail, to, to speak reason to him, to speak the words of God to him, and, and then God takes Nabal out. David didn't even have to worry about Nabal because he suffers what seems like a stroke, and so God took care of it. And so you see through all these circumstances that God is teaching David how to be a patient man, how to depend on him, whatever the circumstance is. And we get to chapter 26 here, and it's almost like part two of chapter 24, where David spared Saul, and with, uh, with some help, we came up with the title, uh, Spared, Not Speared. Um, chapter 26, once again, David has the perfect opportunity to take revenge, to take out Saul. And, but he's patient this time. 
He's learned his lessons. He has a godly, patient wife, probably in the background, helping temper his anger. And it's just a reflection of God, you know, that God is a patient God. You know, like 2 Peter 3, 9 says, God is patient. He's long-suffering. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so David is learning that. He's developing a heart after God's own heart. Well, let's look at the first five verses. We're going to kind of break it out into four sections here. The first part is where Saul searches for David. Let's, uh, today I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. I generally prefer the New King James uh, Version, but today this narrative kind of reads pretty well in the New Living Translation. Uh, now some men from Ziph came to Saul at Gibeah to tell him, David is hiding on the hill of Hekilah, which overlooks Jeshimon. So Saul took 3,000 of Israel's elite troops and went to hunt him down in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul camped along the road beside the hill of Hekilah near Jeshimon, where David was hiding. When David learned that Saul had come after him into the wilderness, he sent out spies to verify the report of Saul's arrival. David slipped over to Saul's camp one night to look around. Saul and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army, were sleeping inside a ring formed by the slumbering warriors. So at the beginning, Saul's at Gibeah, that's his uh, birth town, that's the place he's kind of like his capital. And he's been searching for David and his 600 men, but he took a break after that chapter 24 reconciliation, right? And then he gets a report from these men from Ziph. Um, they're the same guys who reported David's location to Saul back in chapter 19. I kind of wondered when I looked at this passage, did these guys just have it out for David, or are they just that loyal to Saul? Maybe they got a reward the last time and they're going to get another one? I don't know. But uh, Ziph is a city surrounded by a desert in the southern part of uh, Israel. And the hill of Hekilah is near there, and it's a favorite hiding location for David. It's, it's uh, well protected. You could protect your group well on this hill of Hekilah. And they probably used it often. And the men of Ziph, I don't know why they didn't like him there, but they're the ones who reported him and offered to catch David even and hand him over to Saul the last time. You know, interestingly, it, what this passage doesn't tell us when David encounters Saul chasing him down once again, is that David prays the Lord. Look, David shows his dependence on the Lord in this situation. You don't see it here, but what you see is a correlation to Psalm 54. If you look at Psalm 54, the preface says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, regarding the time the Ziphites came and said to Saul, We know where David is hiding, to be accompanied by stringed instruments. What it doesn't tell us in chapter 26 or in chapter 24 is that when David was in trouble, when he was being chased and hunted by Saul, he went to the Lord in prayer. He, he expressed his heart to the Lord through the Psalms. It says, Come with great power, O God, and rescue me. Defend me with your might. He sung a song that kind of sounded like this, didn't it? Just a little bit ago. Defend us. He's powerful. Listen to my prayer, O God. Pay attention to my plea, for strangers are attacking me. Violent people are trying to kill me. They care nothing for God. Interesting. But God is my helper. The Lord keeps me alive. May the evil plans of my enemies be turned against them. Do as you promised and put an end to them. I will sacrifice a voluntary offering to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For you have rescued me from my troubles and helped me to triumph over my enemies. So in the face of new trouble, he's reflecting on how God has already delivered him from his troubles and helped him triumph over his enemies. And he's calling on the Lord to do so once again. His faith, his dependence is on the Lord. Then we see how Saul goes to hunt David in verses 2 to 5. He goes to hunt him and he 
organizes these elite troops again, 3,000 of them. David is quite outnumbered, just numbers alone. David has some mighty men with him. These are mercenaries, kind of rough guys that have banded together with David. But he's only got 600 and Saul's got 3,000. And that's at least about five to one being outnumbered. And even though David's got some mighty men who later become the mighty men in 2 Samuel and Chronicles who accomplish great feats, they're up against great odds here. And David learns that Saul's coming, so he sends spies to confirm that report. And they pinpoint Saul's location, the camp, and then David takes just a couple guys with him to uh, spy out the camp personally. But what they see is that Saul and Abner, his commander of the army, are in the center of this group of 3,000 elite soldiers who are encircling him. It doesn't look good. Then we see in verses 6 to 12, David keeps Abishai from killing Saul. David says, who will volunteer to go in there with me? David asked Ahimelech the Hittite, and Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother. I will go with you, Abishai replied. So David and Abishai went right into Saul's camp and found him asleep with his spear stuck in the ground beside his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying asleep around him. God has surely handed your enemy over to you this time, Abishai whispered to David. Let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't need to strike twice. No, David said, don't kill him. For who can remain innocent after attacking the Lord's anointed one? Surely the Lord will strike Saul down someday, or he will die of old age or in battle. The Lord forbid that I should kill the one he has anointed. Take his spear and not jug of water beside his head, and then let's get out of here. So David took the spear and jug of water that were near Saul's head, and he and Abishai got away without anyone seeing them or even waking up because the Lord had put Saul's men into a deep sleep. It's interesting, isn't it? David wanted to go into the enemy's camp. That's crazy, isn't it? He only took two of his mighty men with him, and there's 3,000 of them down there, and he's like, I'm going to go in there. Who's going to go with me? <laughs> you know, I think partly David is tired of running. You know, he wants to make peace with Saul. He wants to reconcile. He wants to vindicate himself and put an end to this madness. But also, he's just totally trusting in God's protection, just like we read from Psalm 54 that he wrote during this time. God's delivered him. You can trust in him to deliver him again. He asked Ahimelech the Hittite, we don't know much about this guy, it's the only time he's mentioned in the Bible, it's not the same Ahimelech in chapter 21. Uh, it's just a mercenary who befriended David, he joined his growing army, he's probably quite a warrior, but he wasn't willing to risk it. But there was the other guy, Abishai, uh, he, he's quite a man. Uh, he's the oldest son of Zeruiah, David's half-sister, so he's David's nephew, and uh, he's quite a warrior. And you look in the Bible, and if you kind of skip ahead a little bit, he becomes one of David's mighty men. He takes out a giant named uh, Ishai Bina. He uh, offers to kill Shimua. And when David's insulted, he's, he's kind of an interesting blend of a headstrong, impulsive warrior, but very loyal to David. Throughout his career, his rise to being the king, and throughout his kingdom, Abishai is very loyal to David. And he says, I'll go with you. You know, I. Very uncertain circumstances. Who knows how this thing's going to turn out with 3,000 soldiers down there who want to murder David, and he's just going down with one other guy. Abishai is the guy who says, I'll go with you, a courageous warrior. And I kind of wonder sometimes, you know, are we, when we face uncertain circumstances in ministry or whatever it be in life, do we have the courage of the Lord in our hearts and minds? I, I think back to six years ago, and I'm going to share the story about how Steve and I went over to the Corinth Baptist Church. They had been 
meeting in our building here on Sunday afternoons for at least 10 years, I think, and then they had just got their own building on the southeast side. Several of their children uh, went to our Wana ministry, and so we wanted to go meet with them to encourage them to continue coming if they could. And so uh, through a mutual contact, he arranged for Steve and I to meet with uh, just a few of their leaders, right, go down and talk to them. Well, we get down there, and there's uh, not sure what to expect. There's 50 people seated right in front of us, eagerly waiting to hear from us. And uh, we, they seat us up front, and Steve kind of looks over, and he's like, no. <laughs> and so we, so we talk to him through some translation. Uh, you know, we just take a step of faith and take a gulp of bravery and go do, you know. Uh, Jesse South and I had an opportunity to go to Waterloo this spring. At the invitation of the Chin Churches in Iowa, they sent a lot of our kids, their kids to our one ministry, and they wanted to help uh, have us help train their future leaders um, to do better kids ministry. And we were expecting, you know, to meet with some of their leaders, maybe some of the teachers. We don't really know what to expect. But we got up there on the Saturday, and there's like 60 people in there um, waiting to hear from us, and 40 of them or so were like 16 to 25 years old. It was kind of like a youth group event. Um, but they were all excited to learn how to better and more effectively teach the Word of God to children and youth, and it was a wonderful time of ministry. Uh, we, we have brave hearts here at Creekside who kind of don't listen so much to the Port of Prince stories in the news and say, I'll go to Haiti. I'll go to Haiti to serve the Lord, despite what's going on in other parts of that country. My sister Lois, who was born and raised here and until, served here until she age 30, and she got married and went into missions work. And she says, yeah, I'll leave everything behind. I'll go to Ireland. I'll go serve the Lord in Ireland. And after circumstances kind of forced them out there, and then opportunity opened up to go serve the Lord in the West African country of Liberia, a remote jungle village with about 3,000 people, 80% Muslim. And she's like, very primitive living conditions. She says, yeah, I'll go there. I'll go serve the Lord there. And I just kind of wonder, where, where are the brave men and women of God today who are like David, who are like Abishai, who like people going to Haiti and Liberia, where they have said, I'll go. I'll go serve the Lord. I'll, step, I'll take a step forward and have some courage and go serve the Lord. I don't know exactly how it's going to turn out or what's going to happen, but I'll put that in the Lord's hands. And so we take a step of faith sometimes. It's interesting, though, and maybe David, I don't know if David and Bishai realized what God was doing here, but God provides protection through a deep sleep. In verse 12, we see that they were in a deep sleep brought on by the Lord. And I read that and I thought, does God really put people in a deep sleep like that? That's very that's really interesting. Um, well, you look back at Genesis chapter 2, when God created Adam. And then he was going to create Eve. He put Adam in a deep sleep, took one of his ribs to form Eve. You look forward in Genesis chapter 15, and God had made great promises to Abraham to make a great nation out of him, to give him the land as an unconditional, everlasting covenant. And usually what they did in these covenant arrangements was they split animals in half, and they walked between the parts. And it's kind of gross, but it, the symbolism there is very rich because symbolism meant that if either one of us broke this covenant, let me done to the, that person what was done to these animals. Right? So the breaking the covenant they're making. But God puts Abraham in a deep sleep. He passes through the parts all by himself, essentially saying, I'm going to guarantee this covenant, this promises, all by myself, independent of you, Abraham. Put him in a deep sleep. Think of Jonah, right? And Jonah was supposed to go take the message of God's mercy and grace to repent to the people of Nineveh. Instead, he flees the opposite direction to Tarshish, right? And God sends the great storm on the sea, and the sailors are at their wits' ends. They don't know what to do. It's so bad. Jonah's sleeping in the bottom of the boat. I don't know how anybody who can sleep in the bottom of the boat like that unless God put him in a deep sleep. 
until just the right time when he wanted him to wake up, right? Well, we get here and they're asleep and they come right up, all three of those elite soldiers, right up to Saul. They see his spear stuck in the ground and his water jug there and the commander of the army is asleep. And Abishai says, let me pin him to the ground with one strike. What a warrior. How would we have responded, though? I'd like to think that I would be like David and show some restraint. But I don't know. I've, I've not been in his shoes, being pursued and hunted, forced into the wilderness, trying to scrap by and get whatever food and water we could, always on the run, always being hunted, and finally having this second great opportunity to take my revenge. Would I, would I have done? I'd like to say I wouldn't. Now what about when uh, I'm in an office type of job, and you know, uh, what if you get some dirt on a fellow employee, and you got the opportunity to pass that along somehow to a manager, and would might make that other employee look bad. If it's an unethical behavior, you're supposed to report it, right? But what if it's just kind of a regular tic-tac type stuff that goes on in business, and you have the opportunity to make that report to the boss, it would make that person look bad, make you look, make you look good. Maybe there's an opportunity for a promotion for you. What would you do, right? Um, maybe the person was an antagonist and nobody likes the person. Would you still, would you show restraint? Would you refuse revenge or would you, would you do it? I'd like to think we would. Well, David shows godly restraint. Verses 9 and 11a, he says, No, don't kill him. Who can remain innocent after attacking the Lord's anointed one? And in verse 11, the Lord forbid that I should kill the he, uh, the one he has anointed, showing godly restraint. And he's probably keeping in mind the word of God. You know, it's human, it's just kind of human emotion to want to take the revenge, I think, but he is being mindful of the word of God. Exodus 22, 28 says, you must not dishonor God or curse any of your rulers. And I was thinking about how David showed, I mean, not respect so much for Saul, the person, right? But because he was the one that God had put in authority, he was showing respect for God by showing godly restraint and respect for the office God had put Saul into. You know, I think we also could take a lesson from that. We need to be careful not to take action against God's appointed leaders, too, in whatever sphere that is. We have a natural tendency to sustain leadership, right? When an authority says not to do something, our sinful nature says, well, maybe I'd like to do that. Or an authority says, we should do this. So maybe I don't want to do it, right? Kind of a Robin Hood mentality against authorities. That's our sinful nature. But the Bible encourages us in general, in society, like to our government, Romans 13 says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. More reasons given in that passage. And, you know, David illustrates this marvelously. He reveres God. He's not so much revering and honoring Saul, he's honoring God by not taking Saul's life. To take Saul's life would have been to defy God's authority. Now, the exception, obviously, today would be if the authorities are telling us to do something God's word forbids us to do, right? Or to not do something we should do. But generally, we should show respect for even our godless leaders. And even pray for them, as it says in 1 Timothy 2. We should show respect in other areas of life, too. We should show respect for our bosses. Uh, we talked about that in Ephesians 6 not too long ago. We should show respect for our parents. Uh, children, obey your parents and everything. 
And this is well pleasing to the Lord. I just happen to be able to level that up. It's repetition, right? Um, Ephesians 5 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands. Because they're such great guys and they never mess up, right? No, that's not what it says. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Right? We submit to our authorities in our life because we're submitting to the Lord. We have God-appointed leaders in the church, too. Um, and I'm on sabbatical, so this isn't even self-serving. So. <laughs> Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls, and they are accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. That would certainly not be for your good. Now, we have to be very careful about grumbling or undermining God's appointed leaders in this church. You know, even if we don't necessarily agree or like every decision or maybe not even particularly like a particular leader, but we show respect to them as unto God. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes overseers and elders in the church, it says next 20. Because God has made overseers and elders, we show respect to our leaders even in the church because we're showing respect and honor to God. So David does not allow any of his men to take advantage of the unsuspecting Saul in the cave, and he refuses to take revenge once again when he sees Saul's spear right there. And uh, Steve quoted Romans 12 a couple weeks ago. I want to share that once again. It's just shocking. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And you just read that, and it's, I mean, the world is shocked at Romans 12 behavior. That Sermon on the Mount type of behavior. Never taking revenge, never returning pain, evil for evil, never becoming over, overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's, that's unnatural. That can only be done with the Spirit of God in our hearts and our lives. And the love of God shines through us when we do that. And the love of God shines through David. We see in verse 10 how David is patiently waiting and trusting in the promises of God. And that's really the main message of this passage is that uh, to patiently wait and trust in the promises of God. Verse 10, he, he just throws it all into God's hands. He says, surely the Lord will strike Saul down someday, or he'll die of old age, or a battle might stop. Of old age? Well, so David's so patient, he's even willing to wait it out Saul's entire lifetime until Saul might die of old age. That's how patient he is at this point. He's trusting God so completely, that God is so completely in control over the situation, over Saul, that Saul is the right king for that time. And that uh, Saul wasn't the king because he was such a great king, but he was king because God wouldn't. And he could trust God with the timing of when his time would come to be the king. You know, we have a hard time waiting, don't we? <laughs> I have a hard time waiting sometimes. I go frustrated waiting. Uh, family can vouch for me on that. And it's time to get out the door. And I'm like, hey guys, just walk out the door, get in the van, buckle up, let's go. Uh, but no, there's a lot more important circumstances in life, right? That uh, we get frustrated about waiting on my God. Why is this happening to my life? Why is this happening in this person's life? Are you, are you ever going to do something in this person's life to turn them around and send them in the right direction again? And we just, uh, you know, we just got to come back, like to the example of David. And, you know, there's something inherent about waiting on God that just forces us to really trust and depend on Him. 
And I think that's what God's done with David here, right? He's waited so long, so many years to become the rightful king, but he's learning through that time how to trust and depend on God, which is going to serve him very well when he's the king. And, you know, God sees what's going on. He sees what's going on in the person's life. He sees what's going on in our circumstances. And sometimes he sees fit to make us wait. And so we do that. You know, maybe if we had exactly what we wanted, we would have the tendency to be independent from God. That's why not many wealthy uh, come to the kingdom of God, it says. But if God is totally sufficient for all of our needs, if we're depending and waiting on him, then we'll always be in the best place possible. Waiting, depending, trusting on God. David learned this pretty well in chapter 25 of Nabal. Right? He was about to wipe out Nabal and all his men. And God sent Abigail, who softened his heart, reminded him of God's word that he wouldn't want the stain of bloodshed on his conscience and record when he was the king, because vengeance is the Lord's. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And, and what David says here in verse 10 is very prophetic, though, about what actually would happen to Saul. Or killed in battle was one of those options David threw out there. And uh, prophetically, in just a few chapters here, we'll see that. Uh, Providence, according to John Piper, is God's wise and purposeful sovereignty. God's wise and purposeful sovereignty. It's like a Romans 8.28 kind of thing. That we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. See, behind all of our circumstances and people's lives is God working all things together for good to those who are the called according to his purpose. We can always trust and depend on God. You know, whether it's experiencing some kind of suffering, maybe um, some kind of oppressive evil you're facing. You know, there's no promise in the Bible that we won't suffer. In contrast to the prosperity gospel, which would tell us that we should expect from God to be healthy and wealthy, you know, we don't see that in the Bible. There's suffering in life. There's disappointments in life. When we have a political leader or a church leader we're maybe not real happy with, we can always trust God to take care of that person in his time. It's hard to do sometimes. Um, what if that person is just bad, right? I mean, let's just say hypothetically, what if a nation founded on the principles of God's word over the decades and centuries turns away from the principles of God's word, removes God from the schools, removes God from the courts, and... Uh, and then, and then we get a, a bad leader. Now, this is just hypothetically, right? And maybe, maybe though, God working behind the scenes and working all things together for good is, is to punish that nation by giving them a bad leader. Maybe God was punishing the nation of Israel for wanting the king for the wrong reasons and continually turning their hearts away from him by giving them a bad leader in Saul for 40 years. Well, I have to build for 48 years here, right? But any case, God is in control. We can trust God with all circumstances. And would we be willing to say, no matter who our leader is, who our authority is, that I don't necessarily like what these people do, but God appointed them. And he's in control. And shall show respect for that office for the Lord's sake. Bless your enemies, bless and do not curse, we hear Jesus say. Well, David now takes the spear of the water jug, 11b, 12, verse 12. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of a symbol, like, chapters earlier when he cut off a little bit of the hem of Saul's robe as proof that he had the opportunity right in front of him to take Saul's life, but he showed restraint, he refused revenge, and so he takes the, the spear and the jug of water to prove that, but I also 
quite a couple commentators that had some interesting suggestions on the symbolism of that. You see, Saul's spear was kind of a sign of his authority, his power, it was his weapon of death. You always see a spear with him, right? Remember how he tried to pin David to the wall one time? And he tried to get David, Jonathan, his own son, with it? It's a symbol of his authority, his power. And his dread of water, he had to have water in the desert. It's a symbol of life. The water is a symbol of life. And so David symbolically is taking Saul's authority, his power, his life into his hands without taking Saul's life. That's kind of a cool imagery there. Um, but then David rebukes Abner. This is interesting. They get out of the camp. They get to a safe distance. You see in verses 13 to 16, David climbed the hill opposite the camp until he was at a safe distance. Then he shouted down to the soldiers and to Abner, the son of Ner, Wake up, Abner. Who is it? Abner demanded. Well, Abner, you're a great man, aren't you? David taunted. Where in all Israel is there anyone as mighty? So why haven't you guarded your master, the king, when someone came to kill him? This isn't good at all. I swear by the Lord that you and your men deserve to die because you failed to protect your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around. Where are your king's spear and the jug of water that were beside his head? Now, David's calling out Abner for good reason here. I don't know that he's just taunting him. It says that in the Living Translation. But um, he had to wake him up, first of all. The Lord put him in a deep sleep. And if you read the New King James Version, it says, Do you not answer Abner? So it probably took several shouts to get him to wake up. Kind of like waking up kids sometimes. Anyway, um, David calls out to Saul's army in general and to the commander Abner specifically, so he got their attention. And, uh, Abner did have some history here. That, that Abner was the one who introduced David to Saul for the first time and inquired about him the first time. But now Abner is hunting David down to kill him. And this rivalry between David and Abner continued throughout David's uh, kingship. It's very interesting if you read ahead in 2 Samuel. Um, and there's no doubt that Abner failed here. I mean, to not guard the king when you're the commander or you're the bodyguard is a failure deserving of death. And so David is rightfully calling him out. When David was Saul's armor bearer and bodyguard, he would have protected the king's life at the risk of his own life too. And he wants that kind of protection someday when he's the king. So he's calling out the commander here. Now, um, I don't have time for this this morning, but their careers are going to intersect quite a bit in 2 Samuel. Maybe that'll what your uh, time to go read it yourself, and maybe we'll get to study it on Sunday morning sometime. But basically, at a jet tour level, um, thousand foot level, uh, the story is that once Saul dies in battle at the end of 1 Samuel, Abner, uh, spiting Dave, David, uh, doesn't set David up as the king, but sets up Saul's son Ishbosheth as king. So David and Ishbosheth are battling, and then uh, Ishbosheth and Abner have a falling out because Abner takes Ishbosheth's concubine. Abner switches loyalties and goes to David's side and rallies the elders around David. And then Joab, David's commander and nephew, kills Abner in revenge for Abner killing his brother Hesed. Very interesting. You, you don't get any better than that. And this is a historical fiction, right? This is good stuff. Uh, 2 Samuel. Anyways, back to 1 Samuel, chapter 26. Uh, Saul then talks to David who responds. By this time, Saul's waking up. He's realizing what's going on. He realizes, my and my jug are gone, and my men have slept through intruders coming into the camp. And uh, Saul recognized David's voice, and he called out, Is that you, my son David? David replied, Yes, my lord the king. Why are you chasing me? This is very similar to what we saw in chapter 24. Why are you chasing me? What have I done? What is my crime? But now let my lord the king listen to his servant. If the lord has stirred you up against me, then let him accept my offering. But if this is simply a human scheme, then may those involved be cursed by the Lord. For they have driven me from my home so I can no longer live among the Lord's people, 
and they have said, Go worship pagan gods. Must I die on a foreign soil, far from the presence of the Lord? Why has the king of Israel come out to search for a single flea? Why does he hunt me down like a partridge in the mountains? And Saul confessed, I have sinned. Come back home, my son, and I will no longer try to harm you, for you valued my life today. I have been a fool of very, very well. Here is your spirit, king, they replied. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord gives his own reward for doing good and for being loyal, and I refuse to kill you even when the Lord placed you in my power, for you are the Lord's anointed one. Now may the Lord value my life even as I value yours today. May he rescue me from all my troubles. And Saul said to David, Blessings on you, my son David. You will do many heroic deeds, and you will surely succeed. And David went away, and Saul returned home. We start, see, first of all, Saul's tone changes. Right? Verse 17. Is that you, my son? Uh, now Saul has already acknowledged David as the legitimate successor to the throne at the end of chapter 24, basically guaranteeing he would be the next king. But he's a double-minded man. And so he's been persuaded, I think, by other men, maybe by the men of Ziph, maybe by some of his own counselors to chase David again. And he's double-minded, unstable in all his ways. That's the verse that came to mind from James 1.8, right? Yeah, in one moment, he's thinking David is the next successor. He's my son. He's literally, you know, he's my son-in-law. Uh, that was one of the prizes for slaying the giant Goliath, right? He got to marry the princess and kill him. And, but he's unstable. He's double-minded. He's quickly persuaded to do something different. And I, and I hope we're not like that, right? I hope we're not double-minded. At one, at one time, uh, praising the Lord with joy in our hearts on Sunday morning, but then during the week, uh, doing something very ungodly. Or something just totally ignoring the Lord during the rest of our week, right? Are we double-minded, unstable in our ways? We're quick to judge Saul here, but maybe we're like that sometimes too. Um, David's response, verse 18 to 20, he's trying to vindicate himself. Why are you chasing me? What have I done? What is my crime? And he lays out two possibilities, though. David in his humility, I find this interesting, that David in his humility suggests that the Lord is possibly behind all this. You know, that not just men counseling Saul to go chase David once again, but he says in verse 19 that the Lord may have stirred up Saul against me. And if that's the case, I'll bring an offering to the Lord. And that he might hope to appease God by that. Now, when we're in adverse circumstances, maybe a sickness, something bad going on in life, this is always a good place to start. You know, examine ourselves, examine our hearts, and see if there's any sin. And if there is, bring a confession to the Lord. Make an offering to the Lord a confession. Because we might possibly be under discipline from the Lord. That's what David thought, possibly. But just because bad things are happening doesn't mean that we've sinned. It doesn't mean that we're not really trusting God, right? But that is a possibility. It's a good thing to start with. Is there anything in my life that's not right? And confess that to the Lord. Secondly, though, David suggests that men may be at fault, and it might just be because simple men are carrying out their sinful schemes, and that is the case here, for sure. Uh, either the men of Ziph or Saul's counselors have incited him, and David calls out a Christian reward on these kind of men. Now, he had been driven out from his place, he was commander of the army, well-respected, successful, and because Saul was jealous of David, you know, remember that song going around town, Saul's name is thousands, David is ten thousands, that didn't sit too well on Saul's part, right? And he chased them out, and he had to live in the wilderness, he had to live in scarcity. He didn't really, he struggled. And there was no good reason for it other than Saul's jealousy. 
And it's just so ridiculous. David calls out the ridiculousness of Saul and his elite soldiers chasing him down. It's like you're chasing a single flea, Saul. Or it's like you're chasing a partridge in the mountains. I don't know what chasing a partridge in the mountains was like. So when I looked that up, apparently they had sand partridges back then. They run along, along the flat ground very fast. And when they get tired, you can beat them with your stick, right? You wouldn't do that in the mountains. It would be ridiculous to go try to chase down a sand partridge in the mountains. It's like, Saul, this is just ridiculous. You're, I'm like, my threat level to you is like a flea. It's like a sand partridge in the mountains. It's ridiculous. And then Saul, in verse 21, confesses his sin. We've heard this story before, though. So temper his confession here with regarding Saul, right? He says, I have sinned. Come back home, my son, and I will no longer try to harm you, for you valued my life to me. And the fool very, very long. But he said this before, you know, he seemingly was humbled and supposedly repented before. Again, he's that double-minded man. It seems sincere. He admits he's been a fool, or maybe he admitted he was a fool. What more could we ask for in a confession, right? Well, confession is only as good as what follows the confession, right? If we confess our sins to the Lord and get right with the Lord, but then go live a worldly life, is that confession genuine? I don't know. Maybe not. Probably not, right? kind of makes you think back to Pharaoh and Moses when a couple of the times that Moses went to Pharaoh and, and then the plagues had come because Pharaoh wouldn't let my people go he said, I have sinned but then he immediately turned around and sinned more right? Um, hopefully we're not like this, right? And, and it's hard to deal with people like that, isn't it? Human pride can make people very foolish and uh, terribly inconsistent in their lives well David appeals to God's justice David's not willing to return to Saul's court that Saul invited him to he continues to trust in the Lord. This is actually the last time Saul and David ever meet. They never speak again. They never see each other again. This is it right here. Interesting, isn't it? I think Saul should have just told him to keep his beard as a momentum or something. <laughs> now, David states his loyalty to Saul one more time. He reminds Saul how he refused to kill him again. And because Saul's the anointed. And David prays in verse 24 that the Lord will deliver him from all trouble. And that's what we read in Psalm 54. It was totally dependent on the Lord, and that's a good place to be in God's hands. So I'll give them the final blessing and the part ways never to see each other again. In conclusion, I want to share just a few thoughts, learned lessons from this passage. First of all, honor God's authority. Honor God's authority in all aspects of life, in all arenas where we have authority, whether it's government, employment, family, church, marriage, as unto the Lord. As unto the Lord. Secondly, bless and do not curse. Bless and do not curse. And you know, as we're about to take communion in a moment, that's what Jesus did. You know, when he was on the cross, unjustly, the just for the unjust, being put to death for our sins, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even on the cross and his hours of death, he's, he blessed, he didn't curse. And that's authentic Christian behavior for us, right? If the world sees that, Romans uh, 12, 17 behavior, that, that's, that's why. You know, people are looking for something authentic, and that, if we're like that, that's, that's very um, unnatural and, and authentic and godly. And that's what God's done for us, you know. We leave, we leave the wrath and the judgment to God. He's the one who's going to be just and fair, He's, um, but He was fair with us, too, because even though we deserve punishment for our sins, and we justly deserve that punishment for our sins. We deserve wrath. We deserve hell. And we don't want to miss that part of the gospel, right? But the goodness of the gospel is that Jesus Christ blessed when he could have cursed. He's been good to you when he should have been bad to you. Praise him for that kind of salvation, right? 
And thirdly, waiting on God is always best. Waiting on God is always best. If there's one thing to remember about this passage, remember that waiting on God is always best. David, let God be God and let God vindicate him. You know, it's one thing to get bad news and say, deal with it, right? It's another thing to be in a tough circumstance and you don't have any other course of action. What do you do? Because we want to be in control and it's difficult to wait on God sometimes. Just remember that God's the great rewarder. He sees what's going on. As Romans 8, 28 says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. And we can take that to heart next time we're in that circumstance. So we, what do we do? We trust God. We say, God, it's in your timing, according to your will, as it would please you, God. It's not always easy to do. And regardless of what it is, regardless of what we're praying about, we just really need to trust God. That when we run into circumstances we can't explain, we don't know why things are the way they are, why that person's in a knucklehead, shout out there to Steve. We can trust in the fact that Almighty God is in control. Always. Right? He's working all things according to his purpose. And sometimes he'll guard us, sometimes he'll protect us, sometimes he'll deliver us from that, but he doesn't promise that on this, on this side of glory. Right? We don't understand why someone might turn against us or why a relationship would break up or um, why people that were our friends would maybe become our enemies. But we trust God. That he knows best, he knows all these circumstances, and he's our refuge. Like it says in Psalm 91, that he's our refuge, he's our dwelling place, he's our shelter. And I just wonder what would it look like if anytime we're in some kind of circumstance that we would just call out to the Lord on um, a song like Psalm 91 and say, Lord, be, our, be my refuge, be my shadow over me. You know, we just trust that God, he's able to change us, he's able to change circumstances, he can change people to make things right. We can always trust God to deliver us through the flames. He doesn't always keep us from the flames, right? But he delivers us through, through the flames. That's trust. Um, as we transition to communion, I, I want to flip my title of the sermon around. It uh, started out, spared, not speared. But let's flip that moment as we think of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. He was not spared, but speared. Psalm 22, 16, David prophetically wrote, For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked is enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. Now Jesus was the one who was just. Um, if anybody didn't deserve to be punished, it was him. And, he, and if anybody deserved to be spared from death, spared from wicked men, it was him. But thank God that he was not spared. Not spared. He was speared. He was nailed to the cross. He was put to death on the cross for our sins. Even a spear in his side. And he could say in the midst of that, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Let's just pray. Anyway, Father, as we uh, consider this passage we looked at this morning, we just thank you and praise you that you are sovereign. You are the providential God who has all things in control. You are the authority over everything and everyone. And in your providence, you saw fit to allow David to struggle, to suffer, to learn how to patiently wait on you, to depend on you, so that he could be strong in the Lord and serve you more effectively as king. And Lord, as we battle whatever it is in our lives, uh, whether it's somebody who's gone wayward, or sickness, prolonged sickness, or struggles, or whatever it is, Lord, we just uh, 
cast our cares on you, for we know you care for us. And we just know that the Lord Jesus is the one who went to the cross, paid for our sins. And because of that, Lord, we were redeemed. We have everlasting life. Just thank you so much that he was not spirit and that he was spirit on our behalf so that we might have everlasting life, have the ability to lead and live a righteous life according to these principles we saw in this passage. And we take the bread and the wine now and we want to say thank you. Thank you, Lord, for all you've done for us to bring us salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, if you're a believer in Christ, uh, we invite you during this next song come up to the table in front or the table in back and to take the bread and the juice. Uh, but before you do that, to take a moment to uh, confess your sin, confess your need for Christ. Um, the Bible calls us to, when we when we do this, to take it seriously and to examine our hearts. And so uh, we'll give you a, a moment to do that. And uh, during this next song, come up when you're ready to celebrate what Jesus has done for us.